You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are coming towards the end of this series in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, um, as you recall, is a story with so many one-on-one dialogues that Jesus has with different individuals all the way through. It's just fascinating how he does this and how the gospel records these. And most of these dialogues, from Nicodemus to the woman at the well, to Nathaniel, uh, to Philip, to we haven't even covered all of them that we could have, um, Mary and Martha um, at the grave of Lazarus. The one, uh, they're all often questions about identity. Who am I? What am I about? Whose am I? Am I my ethnicity? Am I my failures? Am I my background? Am I uh, what other people say of me? Am I my work? You name it. Identity is a huge issue. Today, we're with Peter. After the resurrection, and his question he's struggling with, I believe, is who am I? Am I my failures? Am I my contradictions? I said one thing and I did another. Am I good for anything anymore? I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Something happened, something you did, something you said, and you wonder, am I good for anything? Or is this stuck with me forever? So just a couple of weeks before we get in, just before we get into the text itself, um, let's get a little backdrop to the story. So two to three weeks prior to this encounter that Peter has with Jesus by a fire at the, the Sea of Galilee for breakfast, Jesus um, spoke to his disciples the night that he would be betrayed and told them he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be handed over, that he was going to be tried, convicted, crucified, but he would rise again. And Peter is the one who objects to the whole idea of any of this and cries out, no, 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 I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. And they may all, he he kind of turns on the rest of the disciples, (laughs) they may all forsake you, but I will not. And then, as you might know, and all four Gospels actually record this event, Peter ends up denying Jesus that night three times. He first of all runs away in the garden, like everyone else, but when he comes back to the trial to kind of be outside of the courtyard to see what's going on, he's starting to warm himself by a fire, and there's a young slave girl about probably age 10 or 12. She has no status, she has no position, she has nothing, but she recognizes and wonders, hey, are you, you're from Galilee, right? Are you one of his disciples? And Peter denies three times. He's so contradicted by himself. So the question is, why is this such a bad thing, right? Why is this so incredibly grievous that Peter would deny Jesus? Okay? And I think there are a few reasons for that. First of all, Peter was not just one of the 12. He was one of three. Peter, James, and John often went alone with Jesus to do different things. And of those three, Peter is the one whom Jesus calls out and calls the rock. And here he crumbles, right? Right before everything. On top of that, he seems so out of touch 
with himself, that he would have such bravado, that he would have such moral superiority over all the rest, that he would be so blatantly straightforward and zealous and say, I will never, I would rather die before any of this happens. And then he does exactly the opposite of what he said. Now, if it was just once, you know, you probably said things once and oops, that was kind of a slip, right? Okay, I'll give you that. I hope you give me that too, right? You know, slip of the tongue or it's out of character or maybe I was hangry, you know, hungry and therefore got a little and then tense. That happens to me, by the way. Um, but Peter didn't do it just once. He didn't do it just twice. He did it three times over the course of a few hours. So he had time to even reflect on it in between, right? And here's the deal, too. It's really interesting. Richard Bauckham, notice uh, he's a New Testament scholar from, I think, Great Britain. And he said that when Peter denied Jesus, um, it's mentioned in all the Gospels, but in the Gospel of Mark, which we do believe is the one that has Peter as kind of a testimony behind the whole gospel. That Mark, the evangelist, had Peter with him as he wrote this gospel. And it's in the gospel of Mark, it becomes very blunt, where it says in Mark 14, 17, that Peter, he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, the Greek word for that, curses, is anathematizing, and it really means to say, to condemn someone, to curse or to damn someone or to say to hell with. I know, I'm glad the kids are gone, right? Um, and so the question is, it just says he curses, quote, someone, right? So the question is who? And Richard Bauckham says, I don't think it was Peter, that he was condemning himself. You know, because that really wouldn't prove anything, by the way. You know, hey, may I be damned if, if I, you know, I'm not telling the truth. You know, that might be a, I think you're protesting a little too much. Have you ever, you know, I swear on a stack of Bibles type of thing. And you go like, yeah, if you need to do that, something's wrong. Or I don't think it was that he was condemning the people who were asking the question. <laughs> you know, Curse you for saying that to me. How dare you? Because that, too, would be too much of a protest. Richard Bauckham believes the one he was condemning was Jesus. In an honor and shame culture that the New Testament was like, the best proof that you were not loyal to someone, that you were disowning someone, is to say to hell with that person. Now do you understand so Peter was saving his own skin by saying, let Jesus go to hell. <laughs> How much more cowardly can you get? And this before, like I said, a slave girl. She had no power over him. How will Peter ever get past this? That is the question, and that's why we have our text in front of us. Okay, And so, um, I think he learned that night the truth of what Jeremiah had said uh, 600 years before him. 
In Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what's so bad about the deceitfulness of the heart is the fact that Peter was so full of himself and full of his own bravado that he thought he would be different than anybody else. And he turns out to be worse than anybody else if he's different in any way. He believed in someone he was not. We often do this. The Bible says, we want to believe so much about ourselves and we'll justify and rationalize and blame shift and excuse. We don't even have good judgment on what we're able to do. And Peter found out that night that he was more wicked, more self-centered than he ever dared believe about himself. And when that kind of happens... When, not if, I have a feeling for all of us, when that happens, what Jesus does for Peter in our text today is what we want him to do for us, and he will. Now, Vicki Johnson recalls, I think, he told, she told me this week, it was just so serendipitous, providential, that you had mentioned Andy Stanley. She, he's a pastor up in Atlanta. He records the fact that a lot of college students um, leave the faith during their college years, and most people think it's because, well, um, the academic environment is antithetical, or they come up with all these rat. It's not about rationality. It's not about these excuses or that excuses. Um, what it comes down to, Andy Stanley said, is that they um, feel um, shame and guilt, and they don't know what to do with it. Because if you don't know, you probably do. All sorts of stuff happens during college years. Some of it not so pretty and not so wonderful, and people don't feel good about themselves during those times. So what do you do with all that stuff? Today we've got the answer of what Jesus does with it. How Jesus does this for Peter, I think he does it for all of us. So we're going to read our text now, finally, in John 21, 15 to 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by the kind, what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. So from this text, we're going to learn, I think, these three points, okay? This is what Jesus will do for you, what he did for Peter. He will gently confront, he will compassionately recall, and he will clarify the cross. First of all, gently confront. You know, Jesus asks Peter how many times? Three. Four. The three times he denied. And I don't know if you realize this, but it's happening at a fireside again, just like it did the night of the, the betrayal and the denial. It's painful. 
In fact, the text says Peter was grieved that Jesus asked the third time. Everybody knew what was going on around this fire. You can tell that it pained him. It set this huge flashback to the night of the denial. Do you love me? Do you love me more than the rest of these? Jesus asks, basically saying, Peter, you're the one that said that you were going to be different than everyone else. And you might say, wow, why is Jesus being so cruel to bring all this up? It seems like he's twisting in a knife. No, he is using a knife. It's called surgery. He is gently confronting Peter with the truth, his own wickedness. You know, the Bible basically says there's no other way to be healed without kind of the removal, the surgical removal of the power of sin, without the recognition of it. You know, it's so often in our society, people would rather kind of just get on with it, forget, let go, but not necessarily forgive. To avoid rather than ever confront, to tolerate rather than to love. And so um, often we'll say things like, no problem, no big deal, nothing to it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, uh, a pastor during World War II in Germany, would call this cheap grace. This understanding of, well, God just kind of accepts everyone wherever. And um, kind of generically, it's really more about tolerance rather than love. It's more about bland acceptance and coexistence. It's not really about deepening a relationship or having any relationship. It's just, you're there, I'm here. You do your thing, I do mine. You do you. That is not the power of the gospel. Cheap grace never changes anyone. And why Dietrich Bonhoeffer brought it up at that time, specifically because he was a pastor in Germany at a time where cheap grace seemed to be everywhere, and society was saying, oh, well, whatever, you know, I know what I believe in my head, and it tolerated the intolerance of the Third Reich, and it put up with allowing and justifying the injustices that were happening in that society. God is not that way. That's not the gospel. If you have a God who's, who has no big deal about sin, then you really have a God who has no big deal about love. Just to accept people, you know, what does that actually take? Nothing. But to have a God who does not tolerate wickedness in any form, who is so pure and perfect that all our defiance, all our hatred, all our selfishness, all our egotism cannot be tolerated or overlooked, and yet to have a God who loves and compassionately wants to be close to people who have rebelled against him, how does he do that? And yet that is exactly what God does. He does what seems impossible. He takes the contradiction of our lives into himself. That's expensive grace, costly grace. How could God do that? It's amazing grace, what we're doing. And that, only that kind of a God electrifies us. That kind of a God is the one that came to Peter and asked the question, do you love me? 
Peter will never wonder after this instant by the fire what Jesus believes about him, thinks about him, or how Jesus loves him. He will know that, yes, he was wicked, but he is absolutely forgiven and absolutely uh, placed back. So first does come the knife. It's kind of hard, that surgery, in any of our lives, right? This is what um, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Real repentance actually liberates. Liberates, frees. Peter was free. Now, Jesus could have kind of produced the other kind of grief that this talks about, kind of the worldly grief. He could have said to Peter at that fire, uh, Peter, you don't belong here. What you did is inexcusable. And you know that. It's time for you to leave the group. We're going to find a replacement for you. He could have gone, you know, with that overused phrase that we've heard, cancel culture, purge the person, banish them, castigate them, treat them as the issue. Make them pay, not only for now, but because Google is like permanently eternal. Make their reputation be that forever and ever, amen. That's the only thing that that person is, is their past failure or their past mistake or their past wickedness. And Jesus would not do that. All that does, by the way, in our society, banishing or purging people or treating them is trying to make us feel good like we're not anything like them when we all are. Jesus wants to remove all of that. So yes, I do believe Peter was filled with regret. But what's wonderful about this is that the regret is removed by Jesus. Now, you, uh, so Peter knows already, but he's still filled with regret. He knows Jesus rose from the dead. He knows that the crucifixion happened. He knows what happened. At the, he's even seen Jesus prior to this, twice at least, once with the 10 outside of Thomas and then once at, with the 11 with Thomas. And he's heard Jesus say, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. But I think he is still wondering about himself. And with what he did and how he had so contradicted what he said he would be. And that's why, just before this text, why it's at the Sea of Galilee. What's going on is Peter says, I'm going fishing. Because that's probably what he thinks. That's the only thing I'm good at anymore. I'm not good for anything else. Let me just go back to the way it was before Jesus. Who would want me anyways? Talk about layer upon layer of self-rejection and shame. And that's why Peter does gently confront, or Jesus gently confront Peter. And Peter does two things in our text, which is wonderful. The first is he makes no excuses. You know, he doesn't say, well, you know, I was having a bad night. He doesn't also say, hey, I al he doesn't get defensive either. He doesn't say, hey, I already told you I loved you. Why keep asking me? Why are you rubbing it in? Give me a break. My life was on the line. He doesn't play any of those games. He just says, yes, you know I love you. No excuses, no blame shifting, no justification. And secondly, 
Peter doesn't grovel in self-pity. You know, oh, I'm, yes, Jesus, you know, I'm just so terrible and awful and, you know, and just going on and on. And you probably know people who've done this before. It's so easy for me to fall into self-pity when things go badly. I think if I make myself feel worse, then I'm paying for what bad I did. It's a form of atonement, self-pity, a false form of atonement. It doesn't work. And what's really funny about self-pity, and Peter could have fallen into it, is it actually is focused on the self again. And repentance is not focused on your pain and trying to get over it. It is focused on the fact that Peter realizes now he caused Jesus pain. See, breaking the, the law, God's law, is not really about, oh my gosh, I'm, it's not that I broke a law. In fact, the law does not get broken. I am broken, broken by the law, but I also, what's really happening is I broke God's heart. And true repentance understands that I have caused God agony and grief and pain. And that's what's so unique about Christianity throughout both the Old Testament and New Testament is that God is open to our pain and is vulnerable to it and grieves with us and is hurt by us and how we respond. And Peter recognizes this. In a sense, Jesus is saying, each time, Peter, you you failed me. And Peter responds, yes, I did. Peter, you failed me. I know, I did. Peter... You failed me three times. I know. I failed you three times. Gently confront. Now compassionately recall. I love this. You know, you know what a recall is. You have a recall on your car, you take it in because there's something defective, they fix it so it doesn't cause a problem in the future. Peter gets a recall here. Like that. He has something defective. And what's so fascinating is how God recalls him is not just, okay, you can be one of the 12 now. We'll put you on probation. We'll have a trial period and do an evaluation in a couple more months. It's not the kind of recall at all. He says, Jesus says three times, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And what's great is you think, oh, that's a wonderful metaphor, shepherd, sheep. Actually, the word here is poimene, which is the word for sheep and shepherding. But it was used both in the Old Testament and New Testament because it's a word for leadership. Leadership. The kings and the priests in the Old Testament were called the shepherds of Israel. And so when Jesus is reinstating, recalling Peter, he's saying, hey, you're my leader. I am entrusting the future of my people to you. Is that a shock for someone who has betrayed him? And basically, this is the reality. Jesus says, because you were the worst, you will be the best leader. Because you have shown you are plunging your sins your rebellion, your denials into my forgiveness and grace. And that will make you the best leader. What is it that you want in a leader, really? Someone, I think, who understands her own brokenness, his own human heart, her own sense of self, not being too confident, but also not being so self-centered and so focused and neurotic, 
but not looking at self at all, but just looking to God. And so when Peter is recalled, Jesus is calling him to find his identity in that call, in who Christ is. When your identity then is rooted in Christ as a leader, then it's not on your performance. It's not on your track record. You don't have to build up your own confidence. You now are a sinner saved by grace. You can handle hearing criticism. You can take it. You can learn from mistakes. You can sympathize and understand people who are going through struggles and seeing their own failure. You know how to use that surgical knife that was used on you. And you also know how to bring that healing that was also given to you through God's grace and forgiveness and acceptance. The best leaders in the Bible, I don't care what the leadership books will tell you, even though I've read a number of them, the best leaders in the Bible were the worst sinners. Moses was a murderer. David, an adulterer. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed when Christ called her. And Peter, he was a denier. Paul himself will say he's the chief of sinners. The best leaders. But Jesus doesn't just leave it warm and fuzzy. He also then clarifies what the future holds, too. He's pointing Peter to a future, and he clarifies the cross. He says to Peter in John 21, 18 to 19, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. Now what he's talking about, even John says here, he explains it. Ah, uh, yeah, by the way, that's the way he's going to die. Um, it's about crucifixion. And um, though it's not in the scriptures themselves, there's enough early church testimony Outside of it, we do believe that Peter did end up being crucified. And the legend is that he was even crucified upside down. So he wasn't quite the same as Jesus. But I think this is true for all of us. It's not that we will get crucified literally, but we are crucified. We are crucified to ourselves. Uh, when he says, follow me, he also means you don't get to go wherever you want to go anymore. You don't get to do whatever you want to do anymore. When you were young, when you were not a Christian, you could dress yourself. You could decide today, this is what I'm going to do, and this is where I'm going to go. And, I and you notice people how often in our society, especially right now, are, we want to be you know, totally autonomous and decide whatever we want to maximize my own pleasure and comfort and direction and fulfillment. That's really my only goal. And sure, I might go out and... Um, serve the poor one day here and a little of that there. I might give a little to this charity or that charity, but really that's only so that I feel good about myself, really. Because that's my only real goal is to dress myself and live my life the way I want. And Jesus is saying to Peter and to us, not anymore. Not anymore. There's a death, a death to that way. When you take up your cross, you don't get to go wherever you want to go or do what you want to do. Like a crucifixion, a Christian's then, hands are wide opened. We're exposed and vulnerable to the needs of others. 
Our pocketbook is wide open. We give. Relinquish that which, quote, isn't ours in the first place for the sake of the kingdom. Our schedule is wide open that we can include others. We're not just friendly to people and keep our schedule. We make friends. We give of ourselves. We feed the lambs. We tend people. We care for them. It's amazing but true that God will take the worst. And he does his best through them. So... I think this is one of the most fascinating, important passages in the Gospel of John in some ways because you can have a general understanding of what Jesus did. And Peter probably had that. He knew the death and resurrection. He was resurrected. Okay, great. But now he thought he'd be on the sidelight, sidelines. He thought he'd be out of it. He had blown it. What could possibly change? His self-rejection was so strong at this point in time he didn't understand where he would fit into God's kingdom. And I think most of us have known we've blown it. Some of us doubt that we can even be loved. How would God want to use me when I dot, dot, dot? You can fill in the blank with whatever it is. You've probably got something on your mind right now. I think there's always a fear that we are unlovable. We're always trying to cover up that feeling with trying to be a little better, a little good, um, to put on a mask of some type. And this story is such a graphic illustration that our identity is not tied into trying to make ourselves worthy of being loved. It is tied into the cross of Jesus Christ where it says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's in Jesus Christ that we see that we are truly loved like Peter. George Herbert wrote this poem. Now, he's kind of flowery, kind of old English style. And he wrote this poem because of the self-doubts that he himself had had, and I think many Christians do, about their lovableness and their, am I really, is, could God actually use me in any way? Because you know, I, and this poem, it's called Dialogue, is basically the fact that he didn't, um, well, he didn't see any progress in his life, and he didn't think he was going anywhere, and he was wondering, how, God, can you even want me since I'm not getting anywhere? And so this is, I'm just going to read a portion of it. First of all, the man says, sweetest Savior, if my soul were but worth the having, in other words, am I really worth you having me? Quickly should I then control any thought of waving, but... When all my care and pains cannot give the name of gains, in other words, I'm not making any progress, to thy wretch so full of stains, what delight or hope remains? Really? Me? And the Savior says, what child? Child, that's what he calls you yet. Is the balance thine, thine the poison measure? If I say thou shalt be mine, finger not my treasure. Don't mess with what God has said. He wants you. He's called you. He takes you. He comforts you. He confronts you gently. He calls you again. And he speaks of the cross, just like Peter. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful personal message to Peter and to each of us who know we've blown it. We have blown it, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you would be so willing 
that you have called us, that you want us, that you don't have just this general, oh, I died for the world, but you come to each one of us and call us by name and you call us your very own and you use us for your kingdom's sake even now. Even when we've done things that just so contradict what we've wanted to do, Lord, you have been good to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. We ask that you'd be with us now, Lord, as we will be leaving this place in a few minutes. First of all, that our conversations after, Lord, are just wonderful. And that when we do come to you, Lord Jesus, um, after this moment in time, when we come to the Lord's table, when we receive of you again, that you call us by your very name. And that, Lord, when we do leave this place in this fellowship this morning, that we, like Peter, know that you want us to feed your sheep, that you've called us, that you want to use us. Lord, we do lift up those in our uh, congregation and in our community who need your care for Chris's family as he has died in New Orleans um, from COVID. We just pray for the family he has now left behind, his three children and his wife. We lift up to you, Lord, um, Betsy, a friend of Laurel's who has had so much loss over the last uh, few months. Um, we pray, Lord God, that you just comfort her with the peace of the gospel. We lift up to you, Lord, um, our campus ministry and our leadership and the growth we want to see at Florida Gulf Coast. We commend it into your care and pray that you would work exceeding and abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine, that you would also bless us here at Thrive as we're still recovering from this pandemic in so many ways, that you would bless our connections and have us reach out and serve this community in effective ways, that you would be glorified through whatever happens here at Thrive. Lord, and as we come to your table today, we do, like Peter, say, Lord, forgive us. You have loved us, you have called us, we have grieved you. Forgive us and renew us and lead us so that we do delight in your will and ways, Lord Jesus. So bless us now as we are going to uh, return the thanks and offerings and praise. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>